This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. A new 20-minute documentary has been released featuring the latest footage from the Titanic resting on the bottom of the Atlantic off the southeast coast of Newfoundland. The images were made possible by OceanGate, a company recognized as the leading provider of crude submersibles for charter and scientific research. And uh, just uh, to go to the the video for just a moment, this is uh, Rory Golden of the Belfast Titanic. Society explaining some of what they saw. And now we approach the foremast or mainmast of the ship, which has completely collapsed, lying across more steam winches. When I first dived on the ship in the summer of 2000, the mainmast lay right across the well deck onto the bridge. And now, as we can see, it has completely collapsed. So our guest today is Stockton Rush. He's the CEO and founder of Ocean Gate Incorporated. He's made numerous trips down to the Titanic. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Newfoundland. Wonderful to be back in the snow. Yeah, for sure. It's a little different in February than it is in July. Hey. It certainly is. <laughs> so you're here for a very special occasion. It's the launch of this new documentary. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, we've produced a, a number of short videos after our two missions to the Titanic that we make available on YouTube. And we got a lot of requests for more. People would look at them and go, five minutes isn't enough. Give me more. Give me more. And so we worked on a little bit different format this time. We have uh, Rory Golden, who's a, a Titanic expert, uh, narrates and sort of talks about what you're seeing in some of the historical context, which is great. And then we have a great graphic overlay so you can see where the sub is on the wreck as it moves along. So I think those are, are really important enhancements and uh, pretty excited to get this uh, get this video out. It's haunting, I have to say. I was watching it, and, and Rory's narration, of course, where he knows intrinsically this this wreck site, it, it adds so much to it. Is it haunting going down there? Um, for many, it is haunting. Um, for me, I'm an engineer, and so I sort of look at the technical challenges, and I'm trying, you know, not to touch anything and get close, but not too close. And so I, when I'm down there driving the sub, uh, it is uh, it's a different experience for me than the mission specialists and the researchers who are in the in the front dome and are just able to absorb everything they're looking at. I don't really get to absorb it until I get to the surface. So the emotional impact is after the fact. For me, it's after the fact. For a lot of them, it's like, oh, my God, you know, here it is. And the, when the bow comes up and you, as you get closer, the colors come out. And all of a sudden, it, it goes from being gray to being red and orange and blue and green. And it's a beautiful, beautiful shipwreck. Um, the silence must be another aspect of that, too. Yes. Yes, it is, it, is a, it is very quiet. It, and one of the unusual things is very quiet, partly because our sub is so quiet. So we, we custom-built the submarine, uh, submersible it's called, um, to be quiet for, for filming mostly. But if, you, if you're in a, the Russian Mir subs or Alvin, they typically have fairly noisy uh, fans uh, blowing, um, blowing air. We have very quiet fans. And then the thrusters can also be quite noisy. And so it's a very, the, the, the sub is very quiet when it's cruising along. So how was this particular um, documentary shot? Was this 
back in July? Uh, this was, yes, this was back in July. Uh, it was all taken from just one dive. Um, and most of the footage is from our subsea imaging camera, which is a, a local uh, Newfoundland company. Uh, they have a, a great 4K camera, and that's mounted on the cross brace, which is about 6 to 12 inches off the, uh, the bottom of the sub. And then we also have a few shots from uh, the dome, so inside the 15-inch uh, the uh, inside diameter viewport. Everyone has their iPhones going, and we have a, um, a GoPro and things like that. But most of it's from that Rayfin camera. Very still down there. Do you get currents at that depth? Typically, you do. So, um, as I said, Rory's been down there. We brought uh, P.H. Nargile has come with us on all the expeditions, and he's got the most experience of diving on the Titanic. He was the commander of the French Nautil submarine and, uh, and did many dives down there. And he says it used to have a lot more current. Um, so, you know, we've been fortunate the last two years. The current has been, you know, less than a quarter knot. Um, as the current gets up, it can make it much more challenging in, in how you approach the wreck and what you can look at. But we've been, we've been quite fortunate to have essentially no current. How do you determine from the surface what the current might be like two kilometers down? It's not easy. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and it's not just the current two miles down. The question is, what's the current in the middle? And so uh, it's very difficult to get that current profile um, over the Titanic. And so you're on the some of the eddies and sometimes in the Gulf Stream over the Titanic. So on the surface, we were seeing, you know, one to two knots of current. And then you drop down and you basically are free falling. So when we when the sub starts descending from the surface, it's going down at about three knots. And the first time we went down, um, we had judged that we should drop about a mile to the south of the wreck because typically the currents were going from south to north. Um, and we dropped, and for the first 300 meters, we were going the wrong direction. So we were going away from the wreck. And if we're more than a, you know, a kilometer to two kilometers away, it's questionable whether we'll get back. Uh, but as soon as we went through the thermocline at 300 meters, it switched and went the other way. So the you know, sigh of relief, and then we're cruising back, and we get close to it. So that's a, a challenge. And the, one of the bizarre things is that current will change day to day by 20 to 30 or more degrees. And it's a, it's a two-and-a-half-mile column of water, and it, it'll, it, it's just surprising the amount of energy it would take to change that. So you don't always know. It's a little bit of a crapshoot when you, when you drop. You know, are we going to land you know, to the south? Are we going to land in the debris field? Are we going to come? We haven't come right down on the wreck yet. Um, but we get reasonably close. Close. And then once you get down there, that's when you find out what is the current, you know, down down low, and you can you can feel that, you can see the bottom, and you can you can sense what the current is. Literally, like finding a needle in a haystack, I would imagine, because this is all you have no visual markers <laughs> on the way down. Uh, I I would imagine it's most of that journey is in the midnight zone. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it's it's very dark out, but there's lots of life. So we will leave the lights on and you'll see all kinds of critters go by. So you have what's called marine snow uh, and it, that's going by the viewport. Uh, and then every so often a critter will go by and the weirdest things you've ever seen, you know, two eyes and a long tail or these uh, um, these chains that look like uh, a, pearl, a string of pearls and they're all individual animals connected and they go racing by every so often one of them will chase you back down thinking you might be something to eat or have some food coming off you and you'll, they'll look at you and you'll look at it and then it'll give up and decide you're not worth the energy and 
float off. So I think that's one of the funnest things is the two and a half hours you're going through this pitch black and and the fact that there are these critters that just live there, never see the sun, cruising around. We'll, we'll flash the, the lights. So if you flash the white light, you've got broad spectrum light that goes out and all these critters have their own bioluminescence. So 90 plus percent of the communication is supposed to be um, bioluminescent down deep. And so when you flash the light, everything will respond. Some are responding, hey, I'm over here. Some are responding, you know, you look cute. Should we mate? You know, you never know what they're responding to. And so they're flashing lights back at you for about 10 seconds. Uh, one, one person was commenting that the funny thing about that is, you know, we flash it up and we're all happy to see it. And they're all terrified because they just got this big light and, you know, it could be a critter coming to get them. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, or it may be their big chance to, to meet another one of their species. And so they all quickly respond and spend their chemical energy to pop a few uh, a few lumens of light out. But it's an amazing effect. Does it surprise you how much marine life is down at those depths? Yes. Yeah, very much so. It's it's. You know, I was I grew up, you know, in the 60s, 70s with everybody saying it's you know, all life depends on photosynthesis, that there's no life down deep. Um, and, you know, you want to scuba diving. Oh, why would you go below 130 feet? There's nothing down there. And that's just a complete lie. It's there's life all the way through the through the water column. It may be densest at the bottom, but there's tons of life floating in the middle. And so uh, I was always I was surprised and I didn't learn that till you know, when I started the business and started to really investigate deep sea life. Um, and then on this trip, we have marine biologists come with us. And um, one of them, uh, uh, Murray Roberts from the University of Edinburgh, gave a great presentation on uh, cold water corals, deep corals. And there are more deep water corals than there are um, tropical corals. And so, and, and they look a lot like tropical corals. So there's sponges and fan corals. We came across this reef that had uh, tons of these things at, at 10,000 feet down uh, with no light. And they're just living off all the nutrients that are flowing by in the water. And there are a lot. There are a lot <laughs> of those nutrients floating around, and you can clearly see them in the in the in the film as well. Um, would a lot of that be detritus from the the wreck itself, or is that some of this marine snow, as you say? I don't know the you know the mix of those, but I would assume most of it's the marine snow. And basically, you have everything coming down from you know. Uh, Parts of fish that have died to uh, fecal matter to uh, bacteria to all kinds of things that are in the in the water and uh, as I said you see the marine snow going and you know whether it's a um, you know a, um, uh, a plankton or it's a chunk of a fish that the shark didn't finish eating it's hard to say. Anything surprise you uh, when making these journeys and seeing some of these creatures going by? Uh, they always, it, I'm always surprised. I mean, I always see something I've never seen before, and I can pretty much guarantee I've seen something that no human being has ever seen before. And that's sort of a, an unusual thing on this planet, to, to be able to see stuff that's just totally new. And it's an amazing, it's a whole universe. I, I wanted to be a space guy. And I grew up with the Apollo program and Star Trek and Star Wars and all the great movies that have existed about exploring space and had that thought that I wanted to be an astronaut. 
And then I realized that by definition in the vacuum of space, there is nothing. And that what we've seen in the movies and what we think about, what we dream about when we look up at the stars is all imaginary. That really all the life to be discovered in our lifetimes is going to be in the ocean. And it's as amazing as anything that uh, James Cameron has put in Avatar. And and he's a very experienced uh, submersible uh, pilot and builder. And a lot of that inspiration has come from his diving. That's where um, the new species and the and the new organisms are. It's in the it's in the ocean. Our guest today on On Target is Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today on On Target is Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated, a company recognized as a leading provider of crude submersibles for charter and scientific research. Why are we talking to him? Because he makes regular trips down. Down to the Titanic in one of these submersibles. So here's the rest of our conversation. Yeah, it's fascinating, and the comparisons you can make to space and the deep ocean, um, you know, are endless. It, it's black. It's mysterious. It's silent. It's deadly. De- deadly, <laughs> exactly. So you, your company, has put together this submersible. Tell us a little bit about this machine. Is it tethered or not tethered? No, it's untethered. Wow, (laughs) that's scary. Well, it's scary, but it gives you a lot of freedom. So um, ROVs, robotically operated vehicles, are tethered to a ship, and so that requires that the ship stay in an exact location, which is a very specialized vessel, usually large and very expensive. Ours doesn't require that, and we can go places you just can't go with a tethered, tethered robot, so that's one added value to it. Um, When I formed the business, um, I had this idea that um, there were researchers who wanted to go into subs. There were very few subs and fewer were being made. Most people were looking at robots and autonomous vehicles. Um, And then there was this this growing group of adventure travelers, this is 13 years ago, who were looking for something different. The people who were going to the Antarctic when it used to be a rare thing to do, or, you know, years ago, the people who go on safaris when that used to be unusual. They're always looking for something different. Um, And I thought, hey, could you join the two of them so that the researchers could have somebody pay to do the research and have a different kind of experience? So with that idea, went out and actually uh, bought a sub um, to figure out some of the other things I didn't know because I was an aerospace guy, not an underwater guy. And what we learned early on um, was that if you go in a sub, you've got to have someone on board who knows what you're, what's out there. Um, we call it a subject matter expert. And it might be a uh, nautical archaeologist. It might be a marine biologist. Um, it could be um, you know, an environmentalist. But it's like if you go to a, a museum and they, or a, an art gallery and there are no labels, um, you don't get a lot. And if you go with a, a guide who is passionate about the subject, it's a completely different experience, even though it's the same art on the wall. And with the first dive I went down, somebody said, hey, that's an that's a interesting fish. What is it? And I said, I don't know. I'm just a sub guy. Um, so you got to have a pilot. You got to have a subject matter expert. And then you don't do the coolest thing you're ever going to do in your life alone. You take your wife, your child, your best friend, something. You got to have at least two people. So that gets you four people. All the subs at the time that were out there were three-person subs. Um, all the deep diving subs are three-person subs. And that's fine if you're going to have a pilot and two researchers because the two researchers can talk. But it doesn't fit for what we wanted to do was this sort of modified adventure tourism function. And then the other thing that we found with the existing subs was they were all spheres. And so a sphere is great for handling pressure. 
but it's not great for sitting in and it's not great for filming. So if you look at films made in deep diving subs, they're typically videos of something outside or what looks like a selfie inside because you can't get far enough away and, and they don't do a lot of inside shots. And so that said, we need a different shape. And as we looked into what was commercially available, we realized no one was doing this and that to do what we wanted to do would require using a completely new material. So almost all subs are either steel or titanium. There had been an aluminum one, but basically metals. Metals are easier to understand, uh, particularly in compression, which is a totally different than, um, say, scuba tanks that are in, in uh, uh, tension. So that led us to look at carbon fiber. And carbon fiber is three times better than titanium on a strength to buoyancy basis, which is what you care about. So in a sub, at some point, you have to be neutrally buoyant. So the, the, the volume that you displace has to equal, of water, has to equal the weight of the sub. And if you look at current subs, they are these titanium spheres that are really heavy. So then they have to add what's called syntactic foam. So it's foam that doesn't compress at depth to get buoyant. So they become big and fat, which means you have to have bigger thrusters, which means you need a bigger ship you need a bigger crane and you don't get that many people and we needed to have this four and in our case five people and then we have a 10 foot long cabin so you can get and we've been able to take a cameraman and a director and a producer and um, you know and the interviewer you know all in a in the sub and get a totally different experience for um, the video uh, component of the experience tight quarters um reasonably it's sort of like a suburban on the inside so it's uh the cabin is about 10 feet long uh, roughly five feet in diameter we have no seating so it's you basically are sitting on a on a mat and and that's great because people can then move around it's a very participatory activity um do you have to have the right head space to go down there i mean you don't want somebody who's going to be a little bit uh, claustrophobic we'll say well it, there's a um huge amount of self-selection. So people who are, well, everyone's a little bit claustrophobic, just like everyone's scared of heights. It's just some people can climb ladders and some can't. And some people can ride in elevators without sweating and some people get nervous. So unless somebody is severely claustrophobic, and we define that as they really think twice about getting in an elevator, um, people have come to us that I'm claustrophobic. Once you get in, the claustrophobia comes from not having anything else to do. So it's sitting in an MRI machine knowing you got nothing else to do. Um, it, when you're in the sub, there's so much else to do. You've got these other people. And, you know, if you're able to take a flight to Europe for nine hours in a plane, you can go in a sub. So the, the severely claustrophobic people don't even talk to us. And then it's more often than not that people have a misconception that it takes some kind of skill. They think they're a diver, that they're going to be under pressure. The pressure is the same as it, it's at one atmosphere. So you don't even have to, you know, your ears don't get clogged like they would on a plane. There's no pressure difference in the sub. So it's not very physically taxing. Um, and as I said, it's very engaging. So um, I, it, you know, I think to a, to a person, they're all surprised how comfortable it is, how quick the time goes, um, and, and the worries that they had sort of go away as soon as the, the dome closes and the weird stuff goes by. <laughs> how do you power something like that? I mean, and, and what, kind of a, what kind of systems need to be um, conceived of there to support the life that's going down there? Well, it's it, a lot of parallels to space. So there's a... Uh, Sea Space Consortium, you know, because there's so many um, uh, similarities. Um, so they start with it's a confined environment, and so we have a carbon dioxide scrubber. It's um, calcium hydroxide, so it takes the carbon dioxide out, and then we add oxygen, and so we have uh, tanks of oxygen. We keep four days of life support on the sub, 
So that takes care of the pressure vessel. So the, the key element with any sub or, uh, submersible or submarine is the pressure vessel, what you're in. Make sure that thing doesn't collapse. So we spent a lot of time you know, with NASA and Boeing and everybody else to make sure, okay, that, if that doesn't collapse, everything else is sort of secondary. You, know, you want to make sure that the pressure vessel doesn't collapse, and then you can clean the environment inside. And then uh, you want to make sure you've got lots of ways to get to the surface. So if you can make sure the thing doesn't collapse and you can get to the surface, then everything else doesn't matter. So beyond the pressure vessel, we have inside the pressure vessel, we have um, um, four uh, sealed lead-acid batteries that supply 24 volts for uh, essentially everything but the thrusters. And so that runs our computers, it runs the scrubber fans, it runs the sonar, the lights, the imaging systems, all of that. And that's in these uh, sealed lead-acid batteries because lithium has some bad reputations, but... May, may or may not be deserved. Uh, externally, we have two uh, lithium polymer batteries that supply 150 volts DC to four electric thrusters. So you use that for driving around. Then we have uh, control spheres. These are uh, glass spheres that are actually filled with oil. So if they were to implode, they wouldn't create a giant explosion or implosion. Uh, and that has motor control circuits and things like that. We have a, a, you know, certain uh, circuit board you know, uh, areas that are oil filled. Um, we have the lights, we have uh, communication equipment, we have uh, navigation equipment. So a lot of things like that are external. And then you have what are called penetrators that go through a titanium interface ring where we can bring data in and send data back out. What kind of uh, you know support system do you need for this to to get the this submersible out to the site and the on the surface its team and all of those kinds of things? It must be logistically. It must be pretty intensive. I didn't realize I was getting into the logistics business. There were a, couple, a lot of things I didn't realize when I got into this, uh, and that was one. How how big that was uh, from the beginning. The plan when I looked at. That sort of, I looked at deep sea exploration as a business as opposed to a government-funded program or a philanthropically funded program. And so I started to look at, okay, what are the revenue sources? We talked about that a little bit. And then what are the costs? And when you look at costs, it's all about the ship. Uh, the sub itself doesn't cost very much. This scrubber and the electrons and the rest of it's a little bit of labor, but it's really nothing next to the cost of the ship. And then the cost of mobilization and demobilizing. So all the gear. So we have three 20-foot shipping containers full of spares and uh, all the equipment we need. And then we designed the whole system to not need its own ship. Um, it's great to be able to have your own ship until it's not operating and then you just see the bills. And so most people default to having a dedicated ship because it does simplify operations. You know exactly you know, where the winch is and you know all the power requirements. Everything's laid out nicely. Um, but it becomes a huge cost burden when it's not being used, which is most of the time. So everything we've got fits in a shipping container. We have uh, about 15 people and crew to operate the sub. We can actually do it with more like 10, but people are getting seasick and you want to be able to work you know, more than an eight hour day. Um, and so we can mobilize that on any ship. Uh, this year we'll be going out on the Polar Prince. We'll bring our shipping containers. The sub, it has its own launch platform. So we don't have to have a custom A-frame crane. So if you typically operate a deep diving sub, you have a, a giant uh, A-frame on the back of the ship. That has to be man-rated A-frame. So there are all kinds of added safety you know, protocols that have to go into that, which means, again, specialized ship added expense. We can tow our system out when we do uh, nearshore operations. We can operate it with a speedboat. It doesn't require much. Now, if you go to the Titanic, you want a big boat. So we, we fit the boat to the job, not to the sub. And is all of that available locally? 
Uh, yes, I mean it, it, we've we've moved it all here, and most of the stuff we use are either modifications of uh, systems that are used on remotely operated vehicles, and there's obviously a you know huge local industry in that, or autonomous vehicles or maritime parts. Uh, you know, one of our valve actuation systems are Bennett trim tab motors, so the same thing you'd have on a speedboat for trimming your thing. We use for activating valves. Uh, we use scuba tanks. It's you know uh, the custom stuff like the pressure vessel and uh, uh, you know, software and the like. Yes, those are those those we have to bring in. But we we can get most everything we need uh, when we go somewhere locally. So you have this dual purpose, of course, is one primarily research, and and secondly, of course, it's adventure tourism, I suppose. So, what type of people are attracted to that? Do you get Elon Musk uh, giving you a call or what? going on <laughs> uh, elon has not been responsive to my emails in case he's <laughs> listening he can he can get me anytime stockton at oceangate.com um, but uh it's a it's a really interesting mix and one of the things that are we call mission specialists who come out uh that they that people don't appreciate they typically come to us because they want to go to see the titanic and that's it i'm going to see the titanic and they it's almost like saying i want to go to the restaurant because i hear their steak is good that's not the experience you know that you you have a great you know, experience traveling with the people you go with, the people you interact with, what you see. You may think you were going to see the Vatican, but what you really enjoyed was getting there and the tour guide or whatever it is. And it's the same thing with the Titanic. They want to see the Titanic. They don't really appreciate that this is a true expedition. And we emphasize that you need to be involved. If you just want to show up, and we refer to it derogatively as the chocolates on the pillow. If you think you're, you know, for a quarter million dollars US, you're going to get chocolates on the pillow, you're wrong. You are going to have a nice cabin and you're going to to get your own cabin, but you're going to be part of the crew, and we expect you to be at the 7 a.m. meeting and the 7 p.m. meeting, and we'd love you to participate. You don't have to, but we'll, you know, we'll teach you how to do stuff. When you're in the sub, I'll let you drive the sub. I'll let you, you know, operate the radios or the text messaging system, so you're really engaged. And so the the people that come are come from an amazing range. We have people who have mortgaged their home to go to the Titanic. I mean, that's how passionate they are, and you know. Passion to, to some engineers is, is hard to understand. To me, I love it because, you know, somebody's passionate about something. It's just amazing. You, you wonder why somebody's so excited about the hermit crab. Well, they are, and you can, you can really learn a lot. So you get these people who are just insanely passionate, and then you get the folks who don't think a quarter million dollars is anything and are just looking for a different, you know, we have some box checkers who are like, you know, hey, I just wanted to say I've gone to the Titanic and I wanted to say I've, you know, climbed Everest and I wanted to, you know, pop, some, you know, check the boxes. Um, about half our mission specialists are also planning to go to space. So they're either going, you know, they're either signed up with Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin. We had a couple of, uh, one individual had been twice to space with Blue Origin, and he joined us. Another one had just gone up. And so the space people is a big overlap. Um, but even they don't appreciate This is not eight minutes of weightlessness. This is eight days. And now you're with people who are, you know, um, totally dedicated to the Titanic. Um, you have people who have traveled and done amazing experiences. And then we have these researchers who have um, got amazing knowledge about deep sea corals or the history of the Titanic or people like Rory Golden um, or P.H. Nargelet who can tell you about prior expeditions to the Titanic and some of the unwritten things, the bizarre things that have happened out at the open ocean. You've got the crew. I mean, the, the great thing about uh, using the Polar Prince is it's a Canadian crew. It's not, not like a lot of... Um, 
uh, offshore vessels where they go to the cheapest labor supplier and whether that's the Philippines or Gabon or wherever and, and the crew is may not even speak your language very well. In this case, we have people who have just amazing stories about what it's like to be a seafarer in, you know, uh, off of Newfoundland you know, with the icebergs. And so in the galley, you've got this great mix of conversations of Titanic history, amazing travel history. Each of these people has is obviously passionate about something and a lot have made a lot of money. Um, so they have interesting business stories. Um, it, it really is a, a, an incredible environment. And, and that's, I think, the I think the lost piece that that uh, I think is the greatest value. And when people leave the ship, that's what they remember. They keep these connections for the rest of their life. That we've got little groups that have developed that are, one guy's funding some shark tagging research that one of the researchers had connected him with. And another one, they all went to Caesarea in uh, Israel to go look for Roman ruins. And, and so it sort of branched off and, and built a little community. Our guest today on On Target is Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated. We're talking about the Titanic. We'll be back right after this. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated. He's back in St. John's today as part of the launch of a new documentary film that's been released about one of his most recent expeditions down to the site of the Titanic back in uh, the summer. Um, and Stockton... Uh, your your window must be very limited, though, because, you know, having lived here most of my life, we, you know, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are familiar with what the weather is mm-hmm. like. Uh, we live by it. Um, so you must have a very narrow window because at one stage you're going to have all that Arctic ice that's coming down, which is a very big hazard, as we all know. And then if you're getting too far into the summer months, you're getting those tropical winds and storms and mm-hmm. hur- hurricanes and the like. And we've seen the, the power of that most recently. So you must have a very limited window in, in which well, you they, can do these things. Yeah, I mean, typically they define the season May to September, which is when you have the best sea conditions over the Titanic. Um, we structure this so that uh, it's, a, it's a day and a half travel out and a day and a half back. And then you have five days on top of uh, the Titanic. And we need to do two days of diving for these mission specialists to get to the Titanic. And we did a bunch of historical analysis and then followed it. And there's services you can pay that will tell you what the weather was like on the Titanic. And we look at windy and all the rest of it. And it's fairly unusual to have more than three awful days. You, know, you can get a major storm come through, but a little less likely in that time period. And so we have a very high probability that from a weather perspective, we can get two out of five days. If the weather's really bad, then we pick alternative dive sites. So we just say, hey, you know, you get it. You get a weather buy so that the, the clients get a 50% credit to do it again next year. But we would also say, well, why don't we dive up north or dive down south in the gully or do something locally so they can, you know, in that case, they get this amazing experience that I was talking about. They just don't get the Titanic, you know, uh, dessert. <laughs> right. And the Titanic dessert is important to it a is lot important. of people. Yes. So What's it like you've been down there how many times? Uh, Ten times. Ten times. Does it ever get dull? I mean, you're going through this this column of blackness, and all of a sudden you see these images that we're all so familiar with now, and so many of us are fascinated by the Titanic. What's that moment like? Well, so there's an interesting moment. As you're you're going through the water column, 
with the lights going by, it really reminds me of the shots of the um, uh, Starship Enterprise, and they're on the bridge, and they've got the, the star field coming at them. Well, in this case, it's going from the bottom to the top, and then when you're going up, it's the opposite direction. So you've got that effect, which I sort of call Act 1, is the way down in the weird critters. And then when you hit the bottom, you're not on the wreck, typically. You're some distance. So you communicate with the surface ship, and it tells you, hey, head north. Um, it's, you know, uh, 800 meters, you know, on this heading. And as you get closer closer to the wreck, you start getting into the debris field. So you typically see chunks of coal. Then you'll see pieces of porcelain. You may see a few personal effects, you know, shoes. Uh, you see uh, tiles from the Turkish bath because those are pretty distinguished. You can see the colors on them. Um, you know, and as you get closer, you get some of the heavier objects, the boilers and, and the like. And so it starts to crescendo up. And then you'll typically see it on the sonar. And you'll see it and you'll call out, I've got the bow at 40 meters. I got the bow at 30 meters. I got it at 20. And around 10 meters, you start to see the, the grayness come up, and then you, you rise up on it. And, and that's sort of the climax scene of Act 2. And then you cruise. We typically come over, over the bow, and then we head back like in the, in the movie we just released where we, we cruise slowly back um, to, the, um, to the bridge area and where the lifeboats were dropped off and then the stern of the bow. And then you, when you come back up, it's Act 3, and you get this, this weird critter thing coming back. And then at the beginning and end, you're landing on this platform that sinks underwater. So the platform is 10 meters underwater and the sub comes and lands on it uh, and then the platform is raised to the surface. So that's a very interesting effect as well. So uh, you're, you're focused primarily on the bow portion because as we all know, it, it cracked in two and they're scattered quite quite a distance 600 meters um so you're you're primarily focused on the bow or well but yes so the mission specialists want to see the bow and and we are pretty clear that we don't guarantee we're going to get you the bow because if you have bad currents and you end up being uh you know a kilometer to the south you're just going to get to the stern section and the stern section is actually really interesting it doesn't you know the bow looks like the bow we've seen the images and james cameron put them in the movie um the stern came down and and james cameron did uh, an amazing He's re-releasing the movie tomorrow, I think. Um, but after that, he's he's funded a lot of studies on how did it really break up. And w- what they found was the stern came sort of straight down. And it had, if you think about it, it had all the force of the weight. It had the coal and the boilers was in there. So it was doing, they think, in, in excess of 40 knots straight down. And it hits the bottom and it flattens out so it's a debris field it is um you can see the sides where the where the uh, portholes are have sort of splayed out um and it's sort of flattened um and the 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 bow had little hydrodynamics and it they estimate was hitting at about 25 knots and went into the mud so it sort of sliced in and it's 60 feet into the mud and it w- it landed so softly that the windows are still intact and the chandeliers are still there the, the image shows you can see the chandeliers in the grand st- where the grand staircase was they're still hanging there with the crystal so completely different landing for the bow than the stern but since the stern opened up you're seeing all kinds of deeper areas that we haven't seen on the bow um, there's the aft portion um, you really, it's starting to fall away, so we don't go in there where the propellers are. Um, but it's a, it's a different effect, and, a, and a, it's harder to tell where you are uh, on the bow. It's pretty easy. Um, so I like the going to the stern, but most people want to 
have the yeah have a Leo the, the, yeah the Leo Kate scene on the bow yeah, yeah absolutely how much has the wreck changed since those iconic images we first got back in what 1985 I mean that's almost 40 years ago it is and it's you know it, it's interesting so the the initial images were sort of low resolution and the the quality of the cameras has gone up which is sort of changes how you perceive it definitely has decayed a lot and the, the people who know that more than I do so I've only been there you know two years this will be the this year will be the first time the wreck has been visited three years in a row and it in when they were salvaging they were going back you know two years in a row but that was back in the 90s and early 2000s uh, there was a very brief expedition in 2019 that got a few images and then there was a big survey done in 2010 but now we've been there 2021 2022 2023 every year and ph narjulis had been there the most uh he was first on the wreck i think in either the late 80s or early 90s um and he says yeah you can definitely see it and particularly you see it in the promenade deck uh, of the bow so you've had this this bow structure and the promenade deck is collapsing on itself and if you think about it the the um uh, thickness and the strength of the structure was less the higher up you were than down low. So, you know, what's going to happen on the thicker areas that were, were you know, c- in contact with the water versus the top? The, for example, the uh, the bridge was wood, and that disappeared long ago, either ripped off when it went down or um, eaten uh, and gone. Um, so you c- And then Captain Smith's bathtubs, one thing that, they've, that was an iconic piece, this bathtub, and now it's completely full of um, the... Uh, uh, debris that's come from the roof on top. You can just make a little less dive. We just going to make a little bit of porcelain. You used to be able to see most of the bathtub with just a little bit of uh, debris in it. Wow. So it, does it strike you when you're seeing this? Do you see the changes year by year by year? I haven't noticed them that much. I mean, again, it's only it was only two years in a row, so it was it was not as dramatic. I think the the the, the forward railing seems to be coming coming off a bit. Um, the uh, you know, we have on the sub uh, a laser scaler, which is a parallel lasers that are 10 centimeters apart, and that's gonna we can we've taken images now of the expansion joint, which has been getting larger, uh, the forward crack, uh, some other pieces like that, and then some of the corals to see how fast those are growing. So that's really the the exciting thing. As we go back year to year, we can see those small changes. I suspect one year we'll come back and be like, oh my goodness, you know, the the entire promenade deck is gone, or some of the davits, the uh, the the ones that launch the uh, lifeboats. There are two of them up there. One of those will be gone. And, and it'll just be because the current can get you know a couple of knots down there. And as the structure gets weaker, they're going to fall off. Someday the bow will collapse. You know, As the primary structure gets eaten away, it'll come down like a, like a demolished building. And we'll show up and it's like, wait, you know, now it looks like the stern. It's, it's still going to be, be there. But if you don't have that railing and, uh, and, the, and you don't have the promenade deck and the portholes, it's going to be a lot different looking site. Our guest today, on On Target is Stockton Rush, CEO and founder of Ocean Gate Incorporated. We'll be back right after this. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Divers love wrecks because they are essentially reefs. Mm-hmm. Um, do you get much of that kind of thing um, life forms living off of that wreck down there? Yes, yeah, so the, the biologists are really excited, particularly since we found this this natural reef that's probably a million years old, a basalt structure with uh, huge, you know, three-foot uh, diameter glass sponges and fan corals. You would think it was a coral reef, and it's 10,000 feet down. Um, on the wreck itself, there are a number of bamboo corals. You see quite a few of those things. They're sort of long things that look like a pipe cleaner. Uh, and then there are some sponges. Um, we see a fair number of the grenadine 
Aberdeen or rat tail fish that come by. They can be up to three feet long with huge eyes that don't seem to care about light because they come right up to the sub. Um, and then you'll see some shrimp, uh, squat lobsters that look a bit like a crab until they hop up and you can see they have a lobster tail. Um, so there's there's a fair amount of life, and the, the one of the things that the um, scientists are most interested in is, okay, you know, how has the Titanic acted, as they say, it's an, an oasis of biodiversity in the abyssal plain. So when you land off the wreck, you don't see a lot. Occasionally, there'll be a rock that's been dropped from an iceberg as it melted, and there'll be a coral coming out of it, and maybe there's a shrimp near it or something. But it's pretty, pretty barren. And then you get to the Titanic, and all of a sudden, you have the structure, and you can see all these different critters starting to populate it and so we know that it's been down there 112 years now what is the or 111 what is the um, uh, life that's developed there with this you know source of iron which is a, a, an important um, uh, resource for a number of bacteria that become the building blocks of these communities um, versus a volcanic structure that's 25 miles away that's been there a million years and and how has that changed and you know I, I'm a big fan of um, of artificial reefs and sinking you know clean ships with no asbestos and oil on them but sinking those things um, because it does seem like it's it's almost like irrigating the desert you know you put it down there and that's where you find life is where there's structure um, we all know the impact of salt water on these structures, metal in particular, but what about the, the, the effect of the pressure? What kind of pressure are we talking about? At those uh, it's 5,800 uh, PSI, uh, 380 bar, um, so it's a lot of pressure. Um, a lot of the explosion sounds were, uh, as, as it went down, things like the boilers, things that were sealed, any sealed container on the ship imploded in you know huge amount of energy there once you've gotten down to the bottom you you really don't have any uh, areas that were were sealed any sealed air pockets and so the metals don't really matter that much there's really not any loading on it you're dealing with some forms of corrosion the, the big thing that's that's eating this literally eating the wreck are these uh, iron eating bacteria because there's not enough oxygen content down there you don't see a lot of um, you actually see there's a fair amount of wood you normally don't see a lot of wood because it gets eaten by wood eating boars but not at this depth um, the 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 bacteria is apparently specific to the Titanic, at least they haven't found it elsewhere, that eats this, um, uh, eats the, the metal. And it, it may have only come in the last, you know, couple of decades. Uh, we really don't know what happened until it was found in 85. But it seems like it's sped up. There have been some estimates that it's eating 400 pounds a day of the, of the metal. Um, how far that goes and how long it lasts is, is a big, big question. It's a graveyard, of course. Um, a lot of people died on that vessel. Um, any left leftover signs? I know there were some very iconic images of shoes. That would be an indicator. Um, any of that left? Um, you see some personal effects, not a lot. Um, you know, we don't salvage at all. And when we go out, we every every cycle we have a a, a moment of silence, and and uh, Rory typically reads a piece about. Uh, last time he had a um, a letter from the uh, Belfast Titanic Society, and so you know we appreciate that. It's we don't do at one point somebody got married down there. You know, we that's uh, that's disrespectful. So um, we try to be very um, respectful of of the over fifteen hundred people who died there the personal effects were grabbed mostly by rms titanic who has them some of them on, on exhibit in um uh, in las vegas um, you do occasionally see a few of few of them um, we have not done as much exploring of the debris field which is very large so there's some areas there that they never got to um, 
and so you know some of the lighter objects would float farther away and we may see more of those it's it's sombering to see you know two shoes and an outfit and a belt and though there used to be a body there that's that's uh that makes you pause um but most of what we see are um uh, chunks of different parts and so you'll see things like the metal that was one of the seats that might have been on the promenade deck and it'll be this ornate ending piece of metal or um i thought we saw a giant hunk of a, a gold ring it turned out now it was a copper pot that had rusted out on the bottom <laughs> but uh you see just those kind of effects uh you see uh, bottles um still a fair amount of dishes uh lots of coal uh, you know, the coal just all s- splayed out. So um, it, depending on where you are and what you see, and then one of the things that's sort of unusual and isn't really talked about much is you see the evidence of other people who've explored it. Uh, in particular, some some submersibles, I won't say who, um, it, it, there's a trick when you're down there, you have to have your buoyancy right. And so the easy way to do it is to drag your fanny. So you basically, you, you drag the skid so you're a little bit negative and you motor through. And so you'll see tracks. Uh, it looks like somebody took a plow. And uh, so if you get lost, you see the tracks, just follow the tracks and you'll probably head to the wreck. Um, everyone has said has to, you have to drop weights when you get down there. So you, you, you're negatively buoyant when you get down, you drop some weight, you get neutral. And when you come up, you drop weight and you try to drop in designated drop zones that have been agreed upon Uh, when you first get down you don't really have a choice and so uh, and and when they were doing salvage they had to drop even you know bigger pieces they brought up a a 20 ton piece and to bring a 20 ton piece up you need to bring 20 tons of sacrificial weight typically it's scrap iron and so that's in the debris field where they where they hook up a giant lift bag and it's a huge bag full of gasoline and or you know diesel and then um you you have 20,000 pounds on it and then you hook it up to the 20,000 piece and you release the stuff so there's a pile of stuff you brought down there um we only drop a 200 pounds um uh, alvin which has been down there drops i think 2700 pounds every time it dives so you know that you find these these pockets and they typically are in the debris field you know nobody drops them you know in uh, they're slightly off the debris field and then these designated areas but those are sort of interesting when you go down and it's like oh yeah that's from the french nautile and that's from the russian mirror and that's from alvin and uh it's it, that that's a weird bookend of the what was there originally and then what we've brought down subsequently sort of a, a reverse everest mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> kind of thing um so where do uh, people get to see this video uh this on video? youtube um i hope you will post the link we will link it um and so we have that we have a lot of other videos that we've done uh, of the debris field um there's some great videos uh cbs sunday morning did um, a 10 minute segment on us over thanksgiving and i think that's on the cbs news site that that really talks about what the experience was like and they talk to the different mission specialists so that that piece of storytelling i see has been very well done by them and then the bbc bbc travel show did uh two half hour segments um on this summer's mission so those are those are great sources for the experience it the the great source for the video is our youtube uh, ocean gate expeditions uh, has its own youtube channel and we've got lots of video there and you know some have been one of them's been viewed four million times and you know a couple ten thousand good indicator of of the level of interest out there obviously huge love of the titanic there's an amazing community you know we say something wrong somebody's going to come right back at us and so it takes a while with this video we had to recut it several times because where it was like, no, that wasn't a reciprocating engine. That was a boiler. That wasn't a control motor. That was a winch. And, and then, you know, go back again uh, because they'll catch it. You know, there are people who are watching this stuff with, uh, with great uh, scrutiny. Uh, almost like train people. 
<laughs> they know everything. They yep. know it. Um, so what's the, up next? What's so we're, next? Another exhibition? we're heading back out uh, May 11th. We'll we'll go back. We're planning again five eight day missions. Um, again, the focus is going to be the documentation of the decay, but also the marine biology piece. Uh, hoping to get some extra dives in beyond the two to where we can go look at some sites like this uh, we call the Narjale Fanning Ridge that we found with the biology on it. There are other sonar targets around the Titanic that would be I'd love to dive on. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. And then we'll, we'll be out um, in uh, St. John's uh, in April for sure for some training. I'll uh, be doing some uh, dives around uh, Holyrood. And uh, then we will... Uh, uh, be coming back uh, to do uh, preparation in late April, early May, and then head out. And are you working on any more technology, submersibles, whatever the case may be? Always thinking of stuff. Yes, we have uh, we have some some plans. We have uh, three submersibles, uh, one of which is going to be going down to Monterey in October to do some dives there. That's a fascinating place. It's got some yeah, great. It's really fun with the dolphins and seals and mola mola and all these critters. Uh, and then uh, we do some work with the University of Rhode Island. Um, we may be doing some dives off of North Carolina. So it's really about the expedition uh, and then incremental improvements to the sub. I have I have plans for bigger, longer, faster, but right now it's getting the word out and, uh, and executing. And are there any challenges that the North Atlantic poses that are different than, say, Monterey or yeah. Carolina? Well, a lot of it is distance from shore. You know, one of the things we point out to the people who come with us is you're nine hours minimum f- before a helicopter could come get you. So when we go out, we bring a board-certified um, emergency room doc is on board the whole time. Because if you've got somebody I – w- I don't worry about the sub, which is the funny thing. People are worried about the sub. I'm terrified about the boat. You know, these boats are not tourist boats. They have big, heavy doors. And you've got people who haven't been at sea. And so if somebody falls and smashes their head and has a brain injury, you better be able to take care of it for nine hours as we try to get them close. So that's, that's a, an extreme challenge when you're more than 200 miles offshore. And then, of course, you have the weather. And, you know, you can have the big seas. The nice thing about what we do is we don't have to go out there. And we don't have to, you know, for most mariners, they've had these terrible sea conditions because there's this big incentive. You've got to get to that port at that time or be on this spot at this time. In our case, we don't. So if the wind's over 25 knots, we'll go elsewhere. And so that helps a lot um, as far as us being able to handle the, the pretty difficult sea conditions that you can see. Well, Stockton, this has been fascinating. I really do appreciate you taking the time with us today. And uh, we'll have the YouTube video linked to our site. And I'm sure people will be watching your future expeditions with great interest. Thanks well, so much. Thank you very much. And it's really been great coming to St. John's. That's one of the things I think our, our clients really enjoy is how great a, a town it is. And we say, look, come a couple of days early. You know, it, it's a wonderful place to, to vacation. Um, and, and we've really enjoyed working here. And that's Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated getting ready for another trip out to the Titanic site now in the spring. We'll be back tomorrow with another On Target. Thanks for listening, everyone.